Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. We're in week three of our series, Image. The first week, we specifically focused on Imago Dei, which means the, the image of God, that God made man in his image. We were created to reflect the glory of God. We are to be his mirror image. Then last week, I told you how we have a tendency to make God into our image. We do this with political and religious agendas, and we create these sacred cows in our churches and even in our personal convictions. Or we live a life with a lack of convi- conviction, and, and we convince ourselves that God is in that. And both ends of that spectrum are, are dangerous. I don't care if you're extremely legalistic or at the other end you are extremely lawless, living without conviction, both ends are dangerous. And both sides of that are man making God into his image. Today I want to speak to you on the subject, get over your selfie. Get over your selfie. Now, I am not one to struggle with self-image. That doesn't make me any better than you. Uh, I would just say that the majority of the time, I'm pretty confident in who I am. The majority of the time. But there are those moments, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, there are moments, times when I feel less confident and unsure of my abilities. And, and I don't want you to understand that I believe that that is part of God's plan for our lives. That if I walked this life constantly confident in my own abilities, then why would I ever feel the need to lean on him? I think it's important for us to realize that, that there are things in life, moments in life, that the rug is pulled out from underneath us and it calls us to question our abilities. And I believe that if we're honest today in this room, that no matter how confident you are, there are times in life when you struggle with your self-image. Self-image is the way that you see yourself. It's how you see your strengths, your weaknesses. It's how you see your own abilities. And life has a way of making you feel worthless. So we put on these facades to mask what's really going on inside because we don't want anyone to see what's really happening because we've got an image to maintain, right? But we all put on these facades, and I'll prove it to you. Now, I, I need you to be honest with me. How many of you have ever taken a selfie with your phone? Now, I'm raising my hand right now. I'm admitting it. Men, don't be afraid to admit. Some of you are like, what's a selfie? And uh, I have taken selfies before. I'm not a fan, but I have. I'm admitting it. And last year, researchers from BYU identified these three categories of people who snap and share their digital self-portraits. And, and they labeled them communicators, autobiographers, and self-publicists. Now, communicators are really interested in the two-way conversation. The reason why they will post a selfie is because they want to engage with friends and family and followers. Autobiographers, on the other hand, they use selfies as a tool to record important events in their lives. They still want others to see their photos, but they don't rely on that. They're, they're more interested in preserving these memories than they are in social engagement and feedback. 
And then you've got the self-publicists. And self-publicists are the people who love documenting their entire lives for the world to see and hope to present themselves in a positive light. And we all hate you. I mean, they will post everything about their lives. And, and you know the perfect example of that, right? The Kardashians. But we'll keep moving. Okay. Now, I don't care which category that you fall into. If you are a frequent selfie taker, you know exactly what to do to make yourself look better than you actually do look. Some of you, 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 some of you have Googled this. You have researched this. I actually did for this sermon. I, I looked it up. There's all kinds of articles on this. You can, you can Google it and find out how to take a better selfie picture. And apparently, ambient light is one of the great, great parts of, of taking a great selfie. Also, you don't take one selfie. You take selfies. Because you need something to choose from, right? Because you never get it right on the first time. So you need multiple shots. So, you know, and the world doesn't see all the ones that don't make the cut. They only see the ones that you want them to see, right? And, and also, don't forget, chin up, camera higher. Because it makes you thinner, right? It makes you more thin when you do. Everybody knows that. You don't want the double chin, you know? So that's why I have a beard, to guard my double chin. You'll never see the double chin. So... You, you want the chin up, the camera even higher. Because some of you are taking notes. Really? I'll look thinner? Yeah. And don't forget about the right filter. I mean, if you get the right filter, it can change everything. Now, I'm not going to say who, but Mandy and I have gotten a good laugh out of one woman's filtered selfies that she posts on social media constantly. She's not in this room, so, so don't, don't be pointing anybody out. But um, filters are interesting to me. When you're your favorite beauty product is a Snapchat filter. Something is wrong, okay? Uh, or when you finally figure out, uh, you know, how to wear those Instagram filters out in public, you'll save yourself a lot of money in makeup, right? So it, it just, it, yeah, we'll figure all that out, I'm sure. But if you go look on your phone at your last selfie, then I guarantee you that some way, somehow, you hammed it up. You, you made it look better than what it actually did. We struggle with how we see ourselves. And I'm not saying that selfies are, are bad, you know, that in itself it's, it's, it's a bad practice. No, I'm not. I am saying that we, especially Americans, we have self-image problems. We do. And everybody in this room, you, you're, you're guilty of this. At some point in time, you have had a self-image problem, and you've probably got another one coming down the road. And, and, and we struggle with how we see ourselves, and, and especially on how we want others to see us. Because life is full of disappointments that affect the way that we see ourselves. And when it affects us and how we see ourselves, we know that other people have to see through that too. Because life is full of things like this. Maybe, maybe you did not land that dream job that you thought that you would land. Or maybe you didn't get the degree that, that would have landed you that dream job. Or maybe you don't have that house with the white picket fence that you long for. Maybe you are not as financially secure as you would like to be. Maybe you don't look physically like you once did or even hope that you would. Maybe you're single and your biological clock is ticking and you don't have the family that you dreamed of. Maybe your kids act more like the spawns of Satan than the 
little angels of heaven. Maybe your marriage is not the fairy tale romance that you had dreamed of. And if we're not careful, we will allow all of these disappointments to create a negative self-image, self-worth within us. The reason why so many people struggle with low, self, with low self-esteem is because the enemy attacks anything that looks like God. And you were created in the image of God. So why wouldn't he attack you? When Satan looks at you, he sees something within you that resembles his creator. He sees something within you that resembles the one that he rebelled against, the one that kicked him out of heaven. He looks at your life, sees the image of God, and he knows that he's inferior to that. And at some point in our Christian maturity, we have to come to grips with the fact that we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. That if God made us in his image, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we've got to begin understanding that because once you get that in your head, you will no longer see yourself as not being worthy. You will no longer see yourself as, as invaluable because you don't see yourself anymore. You see the image of God. Now I want to offer some irrational and senseless theology this morning. So just humor me just for a moment, if you will. But have you ever thought about what it would be like if God struggled with self-esteem? Think about it. It's hard, hard to imagine, right? What if God struggled with self-esteem? Is, does that mean like if he's having a bad day that, that he would be an atheist because he doesn't believe in himself? It's deep, isn't it? I figured the song was so deep in theology. Why don't we have some fun with it, right? I wonder if when we struggle with our self-image and we don't believe in ourselves, are we acting as atheists? Because after all, we are made in his image, right? With all of that said, I need you to understand what this sermon is really about. Because I'm not here today to make you feel good about yourself. I'm sorry, but, but that's not what I'm called to do. I'm not here to make you feel good about yourself. I could. I could stand up here and take on the, the role of a motivational speaker, and, and I could make you feel good about yourself just for a moment, and, and, and you know I could pat you on the back, I could stroke your ego, I could tell you how great that you are, and the reality is you're going to walk out of this room, and the enemy's going to attack you, and, and if you are, are living within yourself, and, and you feel good about yourself and who you are, then the enemy is going to easily tear that apart. And so I'm not here for this self-help sermon. That's, not, that's why we have Joel Osteen. So just, just believe it that that, I shouldn't have said that. That's bad, right? I love, I love Joel. He's a great guy. This is my Bible. I am who it says I am. And I believe, I mean, Joel, Joel Osteen's doing a great job. Great job. We've got enough self-help books on the shelves to last you a million lifetimes. You, you know, they tell me that it's, it's estimated that the self improvement industry rakes in $10 billion a year. $10 billion a year. And if that's working, then why are they releasing thousands of books every year with the same information in all the books, just packaged a little bit different? 
I would tell you somebody's taking our money. That there's a problem deeper than what's on the surface. The surface image is, is what we're struggling with. What we see, what we want others to see. And so this is not a self-help sermon. I'm not here to improve your self-image or your selfie image, although some of you took notes and you will be improving your selfie image. I am here, rather, to help you feel so good about the greatness of God that you forget about yourself. If I can help you see how great God is and that you're made in his image, you'll forget how you see yourself. The answer to improving your image has nothing to do with your weight, has nothing to do with your height, your hair, your lack of hair, or your successes. It has everything to do with how you see your God. I'm going to be reading out of Daniel chapter 3 today, and as you're, as you're finding that, the book of Daniel is this amazing book about prophecy and the end times. A lot of people read it and they don't understand that. And I've spent a significant amount of time studying the book of Daniel in years past and the writings that, 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 that Daniel wrote in this book and how they have so accurately foretold of world powers and, and events. And, and I believe, church, that God gave Daniel insight and that we're waiting on this one major world power to, to come into play and then Daniel's prophecies will be complete. And, and I don't have time to get into all of that today. And, and trust me, I'm not a, a, a end-time prophecy preacher. I know where my gifting and my callings are. However, the book of Daniel has always, always been so interesting to me with that. But today is not about that. We're not looking at the future. What I want us to focus on right now is how the book of Daniel speaks to us in the here and the now, in this moment. The book of Daniel was written during a time that Israel was destroyed by the Babylonians and some of the best and brightest Jewish young men were taken captive and taken back to Babylon to be brainwashed by the Chaldeans. And, and the reason why they picked the, the, the brightest, they wanted the ones with the highest IQ because they are going to train these young men to represent them around the world. They are going to teach them in their religion. They are going to teach them in, in, in their doctrine. They're going to teach them in, in all the areas of school that they can pour into them. And one of the first things that they do is, is they strip them of their, their Jewish identity. They take away their Jewish names and they give them new names. And so chapter 3 turns the attention to some of Daniel's counterparts, three Hebrew boys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and today, and, and again, that's not their, their Jewish names. That's not their given names. They were, they were stripped of their given names, given these names, named after Babylonian gods. And they're given this new identity, and, and they're trying to brainwash them. They're trying to, to pour into them so that they can represent the Babylonian empire. But I want to do something today that is very unusual when you hear about this historical account. Many of you in the room have heard the story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're familiar with this. Some of you have not, but, but for many of you in the room, you know this story. And so you know that, that usually we will focus on the three Hebrew boys. That's where we tend to focus. But I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert very quickly, okay? Um, I mean... You've got to understand the end of this story, and then, and, and if we have time, we'll get into that. But, but, but today, our focus is not on them. So, so here's what happens in the end. They don't bend or bow. 
And because of that, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. When King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace, he asks the question, did we not throw in three? He says, there's four men in the fire, and the fourth one looks like the Son of God. This is absolutely blind-blowing, church. Listen to this. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. But yet we see Jesus physically manifested in the fire with the three Hebrew boys. And King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes him. So that's the end of the story. Sorry if I blew it for you, but, but that's what happens. What I don't want to do today is, is to do what our natural tendency is, and that's follow the Jewish bloodline. That's what the Old Testament does. You're following God setting up a nation, and we're following that Jewish bloodline. But, but I want to do something different, not focus on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want us to look at King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That's where our focus is at today. In the previous chapter, chapter 2, I'm not going to take time to read it, but the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream, and no one in his kingdom can tell him what the dream means. Finally, Daniel interprets the dream. God gives him wisdom and insight to tell King Nebuchadnezzar exactly what the dream meant, and the king is so overwhelmed that he declares that Daniel's God is the God of God. God of gods and the Lord of kings. That's what he says. He says, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And so this pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he turns to God. He begins to worship God. And I don't know how long this lasts. I, I don't know the exact time between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Some people think it was 25 to 35 years between these two chapters. There's no proof of that at all. But, but something changes in the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar between chapters 2 and 3. King Nebuchadnezzar turns his eyes off of the true and living God, the one that, that he admitted is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. He turns his eyes from him and he starts looking at him himself again. Daniel chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound, and listen to this, when you listen to all of these instruments, you start to realize the widespread, the vastness of this kingdom, people coming from all over. This was a world power. And so he says, you are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe. Bagpipe? Really? Bagpipe? And every kind of music is what he says. He says, when you hear that, 
You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I want you to get this. The king ordered his head architects, masons, his builders, to erect this golden image of himself. This is a giant statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. You talk about an egotistical maniac? That's who this guy was. And his goal in doing this was to unite his vast empire religiously. So he ordered all of them to come together and bow down to an image of whom he wanted them to think that he was. This is who I want you to think that I am. This image, the Bible says, was 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide. That's 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall in the desert with the desert sun beaming down reflecting off of this gold image you could see it for miles and miles away this was an egotistical landmark is what it was but but church at 60 cubits high and six cubits wide it was extremely disproportioned and unbalanced kind of like the king's mind was the average body ratio of a person they tell me is five to one five measures high by one measure wide but this image at 60 cubits high six cubits wide it was a 10 to one ratio oh you don't understand what what's happening do you you don't get this you don't understand what this man is struggling with in his mind. This is how he wants people to portray him. This is how he wants people to see him. This is him with his camera. Chin up, camera higher, tilt the head a little bit. Take, take an, an. This is his selfie to the world. He wants people to see him as tall and powerful, but he's a king. We know that he ate well. Daniel chapter 1, all of those young Jewish men that were coming over, they, they were given the opportunity to eat the, the king's meat and drink the, the king's wine. So the king probably was a pretty large man. But when everyone and the known world is coming to him to worship, he sets up this image that is disproportioned, and, and, and he wants them to see him for not what he really is, and so he makes it much taller and much thinner than he actually is. I crack up sometimes when I see speakers and communicators at conferences, and, and they'll use an old picture on the flyer, you know, or on the ad. You ever, you ever been to a conference and you see that? 
and, and you see this, this, this picture of the speaker and you get there and they look nothing like that at all. I mean, I, th this happened recently. I was, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was down in Orlando at the Orange County Convention Center and I was there for a pastor's conference that I attend, General Assembly. And, and I, I remember we were walking in and my wife and my kids were with me and I'm, I'm looking at the, these big banners that they have hanging of the night speakers. And, and one of them who will remain nameless because he could ruin my career if he wanted to. So um, I, I remember looking at it and, and I thought to myself, man, why are you using a picture that's 25 years old? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And here's what blows my mind. They expect people to walk by, look at those banners of, of their, their pretty face on there where they're much younger. And then they get on stage that night where their, their, their face is up on HD quality screens with HD cameras. And you see their big face, their big head up on these screens. And they're, they're 25 years older than the picture outside in the hallway. I'm like, do you not think, are we that dumb that we're not going to notice that, that you're hanging on to yesteryear? It happens. Because we want to impress people. We want you to see us at our very best. And this tall, skinny image of Nebuchadnezzar, at its core, it was a perfect resemblance of who he really was. It's a great example of who we are. I'm really not separating myself from Nebuchadnezzar. Because if I admit it and you admit it, we struggle with self-image too at times. This thing was made out of wood with a gold overlay. Is that not humanity? I, I mean, we are adorned on the outside, but we are inwardly inferior. That's who we are. And we want the whole world to think, look how beautiful and shiny my life is. I can relate. I know how this feels. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm with you, bud, because I know on, on Saturday night before church on Sunday, my son will tell you, he, he, if, if my wife was here today, she would let you know this. I, about 10 o'clock every Saturday night, I plug in the iron, I get out the ironing board, and I know it doesn't look like it, you know, after two services, but man, I will iron my pants, and I will iron my shirts. Shoot, I even iron my handkerchiefs. I am not kidding one bit. <laughs> I'm not lying, it's a sickness, it really is. I will stand before the mirror on Sunday morning. I wake up at 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. I will stand before the mirror with my comb and my scissors. And I will cut all the little hairs just shaping this thing up so nice. You thought it just grew this beautiful? It takes some work. <laughs> After I get my clothes on and stuff, because you know you got to put your T-shirt on that's underneath, you know, before you do your hair, because it'll mess up your, you know what I'm talking about. And I will stand there before that mirror and I'll brush my hair, put the gel in it, get everything just right. Before I walk out the door and eventually show up here to impress you. And you don't think I have a self-image problem? Maybe you can care less about how you look. I know because I see how you're dressed today. But... <laughs> Deep down at your core, you're still made of dirt. And we just like to put the gold on, don't we? We like to adorn this earthly vessel. 
to impress one another. When will we realize that without God, we're wasting away anyway? I wonder how long that image actually lasted before the wood inside of it began to rot. What does this event show me? What do we learn from this? It's that you can have an encounter with God but still struggle with your self-worth and your self-image. King Nebuchadnezzar knew God, worshipped God, but still felt the need to promote his self-image. Self-image really has nothing to do with anyone else. It's not really about comparing your life to, to anyone else's life. That's what we like to think. But it's not really about comparing your life to anyone else because think about it. Adam and Eve, they were the only two humans on the planet. There's nobody else to compare their lives to. What are you going to compare your life to? The rhinoceros? I mean, there's no other human on the planet. But yet they weren't satisfied with who they were. And when the tempter came, when Satan came into their lives... He convinced them that they needed to be more like God and gave them a desire to change who God created them to be. And they wanted to have the knowledge that God had. They wanted to be more like God and they failed to realize that he had made them in his image. God had already made them in his image. They already had his resemblance. What more does a parent want than for their children to look like them? Unless you're extremely ugly, then you pray that your children look nothing like you. But for most of us in the room, we want our children to look like us. You don't think our heavenly father wants our ch his children to look like him? And so he said, I'm making you in, in my image, but it wasn't good enough. They still said, I want to change something about me because I'm not satisfied with who I am. As Christians, church, we are made in the image of Christ. Galatians 3 and 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We wear Christ. We put Christ on. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 says, So all of us who have had the, that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Listen, it's not all at one moment. My relationship with Christ has me changing. I, I am changing every day. I'm becoming more and more and more like Christ. That's where we find contentment. That's where we find our self-worth. We don't find it in our selfies and we don't find it in what we see in the mirror and how empty our lives are and how much we want it to change. We find our worth in Christ Jesus. How much does it sadden God? When we have Jesus, but yet we're not satisfied enough. Often around the office, one of us will walk through either humming or whistling or singing a song. Of course, it's always songs like Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art because your church staff is extremely holy and that's all we sing all the time. 
That's it. We're just, we're amazing, amazing people. Very humble, too. No, we will hum, sing secular songs sometimes, from time to time. Maybe someone's going to the kitchen in the office, or maybe they're going to the copier. Recently, I think we were heading down the road in the church van together as a staff heading to our staff planning day. And I think Pastor Andrew was the one that was, was humming or whistling. He likes to whistle. I can't whistle, but God has gifted him with an amazing whistler. And he's whistling this 1983 hit by Toto. Africa. Anybody know that song? And so he's whistling the song, and, and I, I recognize the tune. And so I, I start singing, I bless the rains down in Africa. I bless the rains. I bless the rains. You were supposed to start singing, and you didn't. You're welcome. It's stuck in your head for the rest of the day. That's a great song to be stuck in your head with, right? Because we can't remember all the words to So Will I, but we can, we can, we can hum that, right? We hum the music that we listen to. We speak with the accent of where we're from, where we're raised. We, we pick up the traits of our parents, and we naturally tend to imitate the people that we admire the most. The problem is, I'm not sure that we admire God the most. If we fix our attention on Him and not ourselves, if we reflect His glory we will be changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory into his likeness. That's the journey of the Christian life. But it means I do not find my self-worth in who I am. I find my self-worth in who he is. And when you don't value that, when you don't admire that, then you lose focus of what really makes you valuable. It's estimated that more than 300,000 people attended that worship service that King Nebuchadnezzar threw that day. 300,000 people. And when the harp and the lyre and the bagpipes, when they begin to play, 300,000 people hit their knees and worship to this golden image of an egotistical madman. All except for three. You didn't really think that I was going to make King Nebuchadnezzar the star of the story, did you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When 300,000 people dropped to their knees and mandated worship, these three boys stood tall. They stood proud. Do you know how awkward it would be if everybody in this room remained seated and just one person 
remained to stand through the entire service. Do you know how awkward it was when 300,000 people hit their knees and three Hebrew boys stand there? I can imagine people looking at him going, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? He'll kill you. Bend your knee, bow down, get down. And they just stood there. There's something about these boys. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, they did not value themselves more than they valued their God. Remember I told you they were the, the brightest of Israel? That's all that they took. Chapter 1 of Daniel tells us they took the, the, the ones with the, the, the highest IQ. They took the best of Israel. That means that these boys, they knew the Torah. They knew the law of God. So they understood we are made in his image. They knew creation. They studied it. They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew that you should have no other gods before him. They understood that you don't bend your knee to an image that has been created by human hands. These boys knew that and they were comfortable in that because it wasn't about them, it was about him. And, and, and when you've got that mindset, you will stand tall, you will stand proud and you will not give in to, to what everybody wants your selfie to look like. And so they bring these boys to King Nebuchadnezzar and he begins to question them. He gives them a second chance actually. And he says, listen, we're gonna do this thing again. And when the band strikes up, you're going to join with everybody else. You see that furnace right there? I'm going to throw you in that if you don't do what I tell you to. And these boys look at King Nebuchadnezzar and here's, here's what they say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were thrown into that furnace. It was so hot that the men that threw them in were consumed. And from a distance, King Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and he says, there's not three, there's four. And one looks like the Son of God. And sure enough, when they bring him out, King Nebuchadnezzar has another revival and he repents. And don't worry, this guy's life was always focused on him. It didn't matter how many times he repented, how many times he said that your God is my God and all that. This guy ends up, he goes so mad over his self-image that he ends up like a dog, running with the dogs on all fours. His life is ruined. But three Hebrew boys live to tell the story of where they find their self-worth and it's not in themselves it's certainly not in King Nebuchadnezzar it's in the God of Israel church understand we cannot bow down to the image of self-worth you don't find your worth in yourself you find your worth in him 
Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.